Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha and welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast. Thanks for joining me. On today's show, we have Jerome Chu. Hi, Jerome. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Well, I'm very happy that I just left the Council of Autism Service Providers Conference and that a couple of days later, my voice has returned. So I'm doing good. It's a Friday. It's a Friday. Thanks for joining. Fantastic. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited about our conversation and about the announcements and information we're going to share with our listeners today. But before we do that, let's begin by having you give an introduction of yourself for our audience. Sure. I'd be happy to. My name is Jerome Chu. I'm a BCBA and a licensed applied behavior analyst in Massachusetts. Uh, I've been working in the field since 2008. And, you know, uh, from my perspective, I just, you know, I've always been kind of a problem solver. And as such, I found myself in some very interesting situations uh, throughout my career, um, starting off as a clinician. Uh, becoming a BCBA or technician first, then BCBA. After working as a clinician for a while, I was actually tapped uh, to join a health insurance company to implement uh, a Medicaid plan, uh, specifically in Massachusetts. That was in 2014 when I started doing that work. And you know, throughout my my travels and my career, I've, I've managed to uh, solve a lot of problems, and I think I've helped quite a few people. And, you know, now I'm at the point where, uh, you know, I'm doing work to help providers prove uh, the quality of care and the organizational health of their businesses. Uh, And I'm also, uh, I also work as an advocate and I work with nonprofits like the Insurance Resource Center in Massachusetts to ensure that people can access care. And we hold uh, providers and payers accountable for what uh, they're supposed to be doing to support individuals trying to access services. Uh, you know, I do I do all sorts of of work uh, in this really interesting niche that I found myself. But uh, you know, everything that I, I do is to make sure that we can uh, you know, really ensure the act, uh, ensure the quality of care. Uh, you know, make sure we that people are receiving what they should be receiving, and to improve access to services. I mean, those are my two primary missions. And I think I found an interesting way to do that. And I've met a lot of interesting people along the way, like yourself, Amanda. So yes, I was going to say no small feat at all. Um, hearing you just list out even the diversity and the breadth of your experience. Um, I know a bit about your history, but it's always informative when people are telling me and linking it all together in their introductions. I'm like, wow, what a journey that's been. And I think it was the Autism Insurance Resource Center that is, is how we connected a couple of years back, um, if I'm oh. thinking correctly. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, and it was in the role of advocacy. And that's such an important uh, part of who I am and my fiber and what I do. And, and the listeners know that as well. And so, yeah, we were faced with the pandemic and uh, telehealth was a big part of the discussions that got us going. But One of the things I really value about our continued discussions is a focus on ethical implementation, removing barriers, increasing quality, not just access. And a lot of my career has been about increasing access. And I always assumed uh, we all knew we meant high quality access. And so question for you is, how would you describe sort of the status of the, the field and where are maybe some of these gaps or holes or what are some of the problems you've been solving? Yeah. Well, before I, I jump on that question, I just wanted to say that uh, you know, I just want to take a step back to when I first met you, Amanda, 
And you know, the reason why we first connected was, and, and I know you mentioned it with the telehealth and the beginning of the pandemic and all of that, you were solving a problem for us, <laughs> which was that all of a sudden ABA providers had to deliver telehealth services uh, because of the issues with COVID and all of that. And you jumped at the opportunity and you shared your information freely. And it was absolutely fantastic. And, and I don't know if you remember, there were almost, there were over 400 people on that webinar um, looking for advice on how to deliver ABA services in a telehealth medium. And that was just, you know, that was my first moment where I was like, Amanda gets it. Like, this is, this is why we're here. This is someone who I want to collaborate with. Uh, so, you know, thank you for that before we, you know, we go past that too quickly, but in regards to, you know, your question of, you know, how does the field, you know, where is the field now? Uh, we're in a really interesting place. <laughs> I, I do believe that, and the field is growing, obviously, um, there are, uh, you know, the rate of, uh, BCBAs joining the field is increasing exponentially, which is a great thing in some ways. It's certainly improving access to services. It gives more people the ability to receive services from a BCBA. Um, so, you know, there is certainly growth, but my, my global concern regarding that has to do with the actual quality of the services being delivered. I have concerns regarding the lack of a, a standard across the field regarding how things should be done uh, and what true quality looks like. I have the, the pleasure of working with a wide variety of providers, uh, mostly on the East Coast, but you know, as far north as New Hampshire, as far south as Florida and Texas. And, and when I meet most providers, I hear the same line all the time. You know, We're of the highest quality. We're the best. We have the best services. Uh, everything we do is top-notch, top-flight. Uh, I, I hear these things all the time. Um, and you know, in my role as a consultant, uh, you know, part of my job is to dig a little bit deeper than kind of the way people portray themselves and see what's actually going on. And uh, regarding the state of services, it, uh, it's interesting because a lot of the time I share stories, obviously with details omitted uh, to protect, uh, you know, integrity and identities of people. But so many people don't believe the stories I tell them about uh, the quality of services being delivered today about the quality of the uh, services, uh, you know, the way in which services are delivered, uh, the way in which services are presented in clinical documentation, uh, the contradictions within reports, in some cases, the kind of dangerous things that are being done uh, by providers unknowingly. Uh, you know, and, and so I, I do have concerns about the field. Um, and I do feel like there's a real lack of information uh, of, of good information to help people really see where they stand. You know, a lot of groups kind of stand on their laurels saying we're the best and we have the top quality and all of that. Uh, but very few groups actually, I don't want to be careful here. Everyone's trying to do their best, right? <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, people are doing this purposefully, but when it comes to innovating something and creating, you know, maybe a new treatment plan to really present and support needs in a better way, uh, maybe it's rolling out parent training goals in a new uh, direction to help support parents actually doing the things that they need to do to help their children, as opposed to kind of reciting what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, maybe it has to do with something that I call kind of integrity checks within treatment, where you're uh, when you're assessing a case, you know, looking at it and saying, okay, you know, we're we're, we're decreasing this problem behavior. Where are we actually teaching the replacement behavior? It's something I see way too often where 
you know, they might identify uh, access to tangibles as the function of uh, inappropriate behavior or maladaptive behavior. And then you look and there's no Mandy program to teach the kid how to request the things that they want. You know, it, it's to me, that's ABA 101. <laughs> Fortunately, I see it in a much larger percentage of the treatment plans I review than I'd like. So, you know, there are definitely challenges that we face in the field. And what I want to do is to help groups get there faster. You know, we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we don't all have to write completely new curriculums for <laughs> treatment. You know, we don't all have to uh, create new trainings for things that have been done by groups across the country. I mean, you can leverage what's out there uh, and get there quicker, you know, and, and so that, you know, that's part of what the work I, I do is to, to help the groups who I work with and collaborate with to get there quicker and, and to be more sustainable and healthy as they make those changes. It, it's growing. That's good but there's definitely concerns. Well, I think you did a really nice job of laying out some of what those concerns are and what some of those solutions are. I know we've had some previous discussions, so I might have more information influencing what I'm going to say, but thinking about the first part you made of like, everybody's trying, that's absolutely my experience. I'm experiencing that they're here because they want to help and they want to be here. The problem we hear about is, you know, burnout or broken systems or, uh, you know, things changing so rapidly or people just not understanding the health plans. I mean, there's a lot that factors into it. And rather than, you know, throw our hands up and fault the field or the world, it's like, okay, what are the solutions? What are the suggestions? And you mentioned standards of care. I would like for you to kind of talk more about that and, and what you mean by that and what you think that that would do for our field. Yeah, this is something that I've been kind of wrestling with for years. <laughs> is the concept of uh, establishing standards of care within the field of ABA. What do I mean by that? I, I, I mean, you know, setting criteria or a minimal standard for what it's acceptable to do certain things. You know, setting a minimal standard for uh, conducting uh, an FBA, right? Uh, minimal standard for uh, doing parent training. Uh, you know, there are guidelines certainly, that give kind of a blurry picture as to what services are supposed to look like, right? I'm okay with that. I, I, I like the idea that the field can individualize services to fit the needs of the, the patient. It, it, I'm not fighting that by any means. But I do think we should have a minimal standard to saying, you know, if you don't do these two or three things, then you're probably doing something wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like hit, like we want to set the bar. I want to set the bar at the low end first, you know, like this is, if you're not doing at least this, right. If you don't at least have a replacement behavior that you're teaching the client within the treatment plan, when you're reducing something for access to tangibles and you don't have a manding program, that's a problem, right? Like that you have to have that. So actually creating kind of a system and checks to make sure that those minimal things are happening at least you know, and minimal standards can be, you know, the hope is that we can uh, make sure that the priors that need more support, right? <laughs> uh, that they they have a list of the things that they should be doing, you know, uh, you know, and the range uh, within the field of ABA, from my opinion, you know, it doesn't just need to be within the clinical services. Um, it could be things uh, in the scope of customer service to our patients. Um, it could be within the scope of uh, you know, conducting, uh, you know, requiring groups to do some sort of uh, patient outreach, doing a survey of families uh, regarding the service they're receiving, um, you know, actually 
you know, for the patients who are able to, you know, potentially getting their input regarding, you know, what they want to focus on. Uh, you know, th th that's a big kind of challenging point right now for adult services. You know, right. are the providers taking the time to actually ask uh, the patients, like, is this what you want to be doing? Right. <laughs> um, I know there's complexity to that, you know, especially for uh, individuals with very high support needs. Um, maybe they can't uh, vocally communicate exactly, you know, what they want, but, you know, you got to ask, right. <laughs> Have you made an effort? Are you trying? Like, I, I just, you know, there's certain things that I, I just, you know, when, when you, you stand where I, where I am, I see all sorts of funny stuff happening in the field. And, uh, you know, I, I get a little bit nervous when I come across providers who aren't doing some of the basic things and, you know, Sometimes, you know, the, the clients I work with are very receptive to what I'm saying and identify that, yes, there, there are some flaws in the system and, you know, we're going to work together to correct those. Other times I've seen providers use the existing guidelines uh, for ABA services almost as a shield to defend the lack of what they're doing. Um, and that's yeah. something that is scaring me in the field where they'll say things like, you know, I'll, just, I'll give an example of something I, you know, I presented. Uh, you know, if a family calls their provider and says a dangerous situation happened with my child, and I need to speak with the BCBA and get help with support with whatever the behavior is, um, and then the provider doesn't call them back for two, three weeks, they don't actually show up for two months. I mean, th this has happened, right? Th th there's no. Uh, you know, if I ask the group kind of, why didn't you respond to that? <laughs> why didn't you do something to address that? The family clearly indicated to you that there was a problem and the BCBA didn't show up. And they'll say things like, well, no one says that I have to respond to that. It was the weekend. It was a holiday. Right. And, and you know, and they're right. <laughs> There's nowhere right. in anything that says you need to respond to patients requests, you know, um, you know, you know, certainly there's language in uh, health plan documents that says that you have to be available. Um, but, you know, I would love for the field to make some kind of commitment to say, you know what, like, we're going to respond to those. You know, we're going to say, you know, we, you're right. You know, if someone calls and says that someone's at risk or there's a dangerous event that occurred, we're going to commit to having the BCBA respond within 24 hours. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't, to me, this is basic common sense, good service to provide for families that are really in the high levels of need. Um, and, and that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I've been able to accomplish on a group by group basis for the clients they work with. We're able to kind of establish new standards, um, create uh, really, you know, in my opinion, like very healthy responses to uh, challenging situations that all providers face. Um, but doing it in a way that's really going to, you know, distinguish themselves from other groups that say it was the weekend. Why would I have to call back? You know, it's, I mean, these are just things that, that I see and I would, I would love to see, you know, across the field, hopefully some sorts of minimal standards established. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, I by no means think that I should be the one setting those minimal standards. I'd love to be a part <laughs> of that conversation. Um, but, you know, I, I, we have to do it as a field, as clinicians, we need to get together and start having these difficult conversations about what we can do, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, and presenting that and coming to some kind of consensus on this. Because if we don't, 
the health insurance companies are just start doing it for us. And they have in many cases, it's already happening. Um, that was the point I was going to exactly chime in and say was if we don't do it, it's going to get done, but it's going to get done for us. And we saw that happen with legislation. We've seen that happen with past advocacy efforts. Things don't just re remain ambiguous. <laughs> People want to know what they're paying for, what they should expect, or what it is that we're offering as a field. And I'm with you on the sense that I want all of those things defined by the people who understand the science and the practice, which um, are going to be <laughs> behavior analysts. Now, you were mentioning from your vantage point that you've seen some of just the gamut, the variety of what's out there. Um, what is, I, I would love for, you know, in your own words, like what is the importance of, or how can people better identify, like how to write effective treatment plans? That's something that, I know it's like a, a huge lofty question and I've done, I've done, you know, like hours and hours of training on that. So I know it's not a quick question, but like even in the beginning of how we conceptualize and, or even communicate how we're conceptualizing the care we want to provide. Um, I've seen that we have a lot of growth in that area for our field. And I, and I know you have as well, yeah. but can you speak to that and the importance of that and just sort of how you've maybe uh, supported organizations or, or groups with that? Sure. Well, um, I think, you know, Amanda, me and you are, are quite aligned in this particular area. And, and I thank you for the work that you've done uh, to support people's knowledge and understanding of how to write a good treatment plan. I mean, uh, this is, you know, um, I was thrilled when, when you created that course and, and uh, I, I continue to applaud individuals who are knowledgeable and care and can communicate what needs to happen. So thank you for doing that. First of all, I, I need to acknowledge that, but speaking to the industry where we are now, what I see and what needs to happen, let me share a little bit more of where I stand so that people can understand what I'm saying. I, I sit at a place where I have access to many providers information. Um, you know, I have access to their treatment plans across the organization. I have access to their best cases and their worst cases. Um, so you know, just from my clients' interactions, I, I can see the incredible work they're doing and I can see some of the challenging situations they're trying to manage. On the other side, kind of from the nonprofit space, uh, working for the Insurance Resource Center, we call ourselves Complaint Central because people only call in to our group when there's a problem, right? Like something bad happens and no one else knows how to solve it, right? It's an issue the family's facing. Uh, relative to something they're concerned about a provider doing and the health plan doesn't know how to support the family in the situation. And it's not really their place to support the family in that situation. Um, who do they talk to? How do they handle it? So, you know, I see a lot of the bad and, and I need to acknowledge that. Like from my perspective, I see a lot more bad than the vast majority of BCBAs in this field, right? <laughs> Just because of what I do and the work that I do. Um, so, Given that, you know, I, just, I, I want to state that first because I, I don't want people to kind of think that I'm just like being super negative about this. I, I see a lot of bad stuff. This is the reality of my work. Also, having been on the insurance side, you know, getting to see thousands and thousands of treatment plans across my department, you know, I see some incredible work and I see some really scary stuff, right? Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, my goal on, when I was authorizing services was to make sure that we were not letting the really scary stuff get through the system. And trust me, there was scary stuff happening out there. So let me just, that's kind of my vantage point. I've seen a lot of bad. I also see the good too, but I just, I see more bad than the average BCBA. It's kind of where I want to say 
I stand from. Um, and I also get into the hood a lot more than most BCBAs do of a lot more providers. So that's kind of the way things work for me. Many of the problems I see are not from my, most of the problems are not from my clients. It's from other situations I've been presented with where I need to investigate. Um, I also investigate for health plans and, and speak with medical directors and advise regarding medically complex cases. Um, you know, there's work I do to support the health plans as well. So I, I get to see a lot of this stuff uh, in my day to day, but um Given all of that relative to treatment plans, let me get back to your question, Amanda. <laughs> um, I see all sorts of weaknesses that are, are presented. Um, we've talked about this at length in, in the past where, uh, you know, simple things like what data collection method is presented in the treatment plan, right? Like that's, that's to me is, you know, we studied that in the BCBA programs that we all, certification programs we all took. You know, when do you use just free trial? When do you use the percent? When do you use rate? When do you use a partial interval? When do you use a whole interval? Like we all learned about all the different uh, data collection methods. But then you look at a lot of these plans and every single program, no matter what the program is, is presented as percent correct. Yep. Percent. Right? And you're going to say percent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's abs- it's mind boggling to me, especially with programs that have no right being measured as a percent correct. And again, Amanda, I'm going to credit, you know, our, our discussions with this. You know, Manding is one of those subjects like and, and we, we've presented on a lot of things, but, you know, it just this is something that everyone needs to hear. And I just if, if we could fix one problem, this is what I love to correct under no circumstances should manding be reported as percent correct? Because as an observer, you are completely unable to determine if there's an EO. You can inference it, you can think it, right? But you don't know if that person actually wants it or not. And if you're doing it as a percent correct, it's almost impossible to create spontaneous and independent mans because you're kind of, you're like all the, Technicians are kind of trying to make these things happen and presenting scenarios and prompt it. And there's just a lot of kind of stuff happening there that ultimately, in my opinion, ends to less effective man training than if you, know, you use other methods of data collection that are much more valid. You know, like why, like kid says apple, gets an apple, you mark it as correct. That kid didn't want that apple. <laughs> you know, maybe they wanted, maybe they wanted to play a game. You know, maybe they just wanted to have an interaction with you. Nothing to do with the apple, right? Like there's all sorts of stuff that can happen where you mark correct. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know. But why aren't we tracking manding as, you know, rates of mans per minute, right? Uh, variety of mans, uh, variety of items requested and you know there's so many ways to to track genuine manding um why is everyone using percent correct so if there's one thing you take from this and like you can forget everything else i said if you write a manding program (laughs) report the data and record the data as either the rate of manding for the individual that you're training to man or create an inventory of the number of things they're requesting. And hopefully you're building the repertoire of things they can request independently. Those are much more valid forms of reporting on the effectiveness of the manning treatment that you're doing, manning therapy you're doing, than saying percent correct for something that you have no ability to determine if it's actually correct or not. So uh, th- these are little things where like, you know, they've become industry norms. 
but they're just wrong. I mean, I, I haven't had this conversation with anyone who's refuted that point. If you really think about it, it's impossible to report Manning as a percent correct. So, you know, I see a lot of weaknesses in treatment plans. That's one of them. That's a common one. Other common issues with treatment plans that I really wish we'd get better is the parent training section. Mm-hmm. Parent training goals. You know, the number of times I've seen uh, family will participate in a program at 80% over X period of sessions as observed by blank in different scenarios. But it's a bad goal, right? It's not observable. No one knows. What, what does participate mean? You know, that, does that mean giving the kid reinforcement? Does that mean watching? Does that mean running a program? No one knows. So, like, that's not observable. You can't, as BCBAs, we can't write that. Like, when it comes to patient skills, I think, you know, generally, I think our industry's figured that out. You know, how do you write an observable, achievable, meaningful goal that's going to support the individual's ability to participate more in their community, communicate more? You know, there's, those are, we're pretty good there. When it comes to parent training, it's like all of our ABA training just turns off and they start writing these goals that have nothing to do with any of the patient rights that, you know, that, that are required to you ensure that, you know, we're providing high quality ABA. It's, you know, you get these things that are, you know, the other goal you see all the time, you know, parents will be able to identify the functions of behavior. It's like, what does that mean? Right? I like, knew you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say the functions of behavior. I was I trying to hold my tongue. I see yeah. it all the time, man. And you did, you know, I'm just saying. Like, They're not RBTs. They're, you know, Dan Unum once said to me, it would be great if we could get the field instead of making parents behave like RBTs, if we could get the analysts to think like parents. Like, look at the context, look mm-hmm. at what it is they're trying to achieve with their child. And how are we giving them the language, the tools, the objectives that will support that? And something that you've really emphasized and taught for me, Jerome, uh, in this area is, you know, what are the family, like, what do they need to do in front of us that will help us role play, model, give feedback, demonstrate what they need to do in, in our absence, right? Like, how can we get, empower the families and give them the tools that they need yeah. and not expect them to take additional data collection and not expect them to develop staff meds and learn the four functions of behavior, yeah, uh, in a reciting sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the again, we, we, I've had, we've had the opportunity to present together on this topic. And, you know, the thing that really sticks with me is, is, you know, not that you have to be a parent to be good at this by any means. But when I became a parent, it illuminated to me kind of the mistakes of my early clinical career. Um then again, you know, everyone wrote those goals and everyone still does write those goals. So let me, let me cut myself some slack here. You know, I I used to write (laughs) that goals, reality, but when I became a parent, I realized kind of like, it's so hard. (laughs) There's so many things going on and sitting at a table, even just getting to sit at a table and talk with someone else about what's happening in your life. Like that's therapeutic in its own right. Because you're not, you know, necessarily working with a kiddo or your, you know, your kids being, you know, they're receiving treatment downstairs and you're talking with BCBA upstairs. Like that can be nice what are you actually learning from sitting at a table and talking about what's going on? Um, you, you really need to engage, right? Like actually show the family how to build the EO so that the child actually requests the thing you want them to request. Like how, how do you actually like create a scenario where you can provide successful treatment? You know, the number, you know, another classic problem, you know, if you go to a, someone's house for treatment, 
and you show up and the kid has all their favorite toys, TVs on, snacks are all in front of them. They're totally satiated on everything, right? And you show up, everything turns off, right? <laughs> it's like, whoa, we just created a very difficult situation to transition into treatment. Yeah, you're set up to fail there, right? You right. got to create the environment and communicate that. But working with a family to kind of more deeply understand that and engage in a different practice prior to transitioning towards anything, right? Like, you know, if that's a family's commonplace, that's what they do, right? Give the kid everything, turn on the TV, give them everything they want. They get, to, I, there's no judgment. I, I have to do that all the time. I have three kids, you know, like I get it, but maybe choosing the times to which you can do that, right? Helping them moderately create a schedule for themselves on how, when to give their kids access to that and when not, and actually modifying the behavior of the parents to support a more, uh, productive treatment and, and better outcomes for the patient. Like those, like act, we need to get our parents to do stuff that's going to help them in the long run, not sit at a table, sipping coffee, talking about the functions of behavior um, or, or just talking about what happened. Sometimes it's okay. Just to talk about what's going on. You get a better insight as clinicians to what's going on, but you gotta do more than that. You actually have to get them, you know, our job is to modify behavior. So let's do that with the parents too. You know, let's, let's give them the skills they need to create a schedule and, and, and keep to the schedule to support, you know, better transitions for them. You know, going to school is a nightmare for a lot of families. You know, you say, all right, time to get in the car, kids fall apart. There are ways that us, you know, we as behavior analysts, and I'm not saying I have this down perfectly either. I mean, this is real life, but there are things we can do to support uh, better transitions, to support the needs of, of the kiddos in the moment that parents can't see, right? Our job as BCBAs is to help them see the things that we see, help them be able to do something about it and empower them to get out of the house without three kids falling apart, right? I'm not saying you're not always successful, but maybe we can get, you know, three days out of five, get out of the house without tantrums. Sometimes that's total success. Another weakness of treatment plants right there. Totally unrealistic expectations for mastery. You read the criteria for ending services and it says things like you know, patient will have met 100% of the goals and displayed 100% of the behaviors that are being uh, taught and mastered, right? And you're like, wait a minute, 100%? Like what human being does things at 100%? No one does things at 100% all the time. So, you know, unrealistic standards to which people are held by, um, unrealistic mastery criteria. You know, I think we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in the way in which we present and plan and hold people to standards. Holding a parent to 100% of anything all the time, it's impossible, right? But you know, let's be a little bit more realistic. Let's drop that standard to 60% of the time, they're gonna support their kid uh, in getting the vocalized demand as opposed to just pointing, right? Like that's a big deal, right? If the parent can get their kid to say, you know, Baba or, you know, Apple or chip or whatever they want, or, you know, or toy or outside or tickles or, you know, tag or whatever they're asking for. If they can get them to say it six more times in an hour, as opposed to just to the pointing game, you've taught that kid some really meaningful language. And if they keep doing that, think of all the opportunities you're providing for that family to help 
build this manning repertoire within their communication with the family. Like there's all these things that we can do if you actually do it with the family, like do it with the parents, get them actually to show you that they can do it and then support them in the areas they need support in. Like that's what parent training should be for me, like from my perspective. And if we wrote our treatment plans that way, it will affect treatment. It will make us better at our jobs. Well, there's a lot there, of work that needs to be done. There is. There is a lot of work that needs to be done. But one common theme that you were talking about just now was we are behavior analysts. We are behavioral scientists. Most people probably listening to the podcast or they're consumers of the science. But we should be able to use the science to help arrange environments. We're not just changing client behavior or the environment that, that lead to change in client behavior. We also need to look at all the stakeholders and we need to understand that behavior analysis can also be used to create effective systems. So before we end today, I do want to kind of bring it back to the work that you're doing within the field. And thank you for speaking to the experiences from your vantage point. But as human beings, we are often inaccurate data recollectors. Like we're pretty good, I think, at taking data, but we aren't really good at remembering what happened without that data. And so... Um, we've talked about how if you were to ask me what's my biggest you know, area or problem, I might tell you, and it might not actually be what the system reveals. Or as, an, as a business owner or as, an, uh, as a leader in an organization, I might say, oh, we really struggle with, um, you know, let's develop an ethics committee. And it's like, well, actually, we could change these three things that would put you more in compliance, and then you'd be behaving more ethically. Um, which is, of course, the uh, intention of the organization who's asking for support with ethics to begin with. Right. So what is that uh, beginning piece? What does it look like when people are asking for your input? Like, how do you help them see the systems um, or the organizational breakdown or identify where they need to begin? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, the first step for me is to really understand who my clients are. Um, and what their needs are. So I, I do a deep dive where I review uh, the contracts uh, for all the payers for my clients uh, to understand what obligations they have to their payers, which differ between health plans, which differ between states, which differ between products within each health plan. I mean, there's a lot of different pieces of this that you really have to read. And what I've found is most companies have sat down and read those documents once when they first signed them, which might've been six, seven years ago. Um, it might've been three years ago, but it, it was a long time. And, and often what happens is some of the information was missed or, or, or it just wasn't fully understood. So a, a lot of the work I do is to make sure that providers are in compliance with their contractual obligations to the health plans. So that's kind of step one. I do a compliance check uh, relative to the contracts and provider manuals to make sure that providers have what they need within their policies, procedures, and practices to be in compliance with the payer from a policy perspective. That's kind of stage one of the work I do. This review also goes into clinical as well. You know, we look at the trainings offered to staff. We look at what shape are the session notes in? Are those in compliance with, with industry standards? What shape are the treatment plan is the treatment plan in and the templates for treatment plans? What needs to be adjusted there to make sure we can raise the quality of care? You know, I, I do this broad scope review as an assessment of my providers first. And then from that, I create recommendations on what to actually do to make, you know, to enhance the quality of their trainings, where I might recommend something like 
your treatment plan class, right? Maybe they have to take that in order to raise the quality of the treatment plans. Maybe they have to redo a treatment plan template. Maybe they have to modify two or three of the session note templates to ensure key information that's not there. After, you know, so that's step one is that, that initial review where I go across policies, procedures, contracts, clinical documentation, training. Uh, I also speak with people on the team, obviously, to get to know the values of the organization, understand what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and they leave that initial review with recommendations and suggestions on how to move forward. That's step one. Once we do that review, you know, it takes about two weeks. There's a lot of reading on my end to get through all those contracts, but I found it to be very, very valuable to the clients to make sure that they understand what they need. And then from there, they get access to a very wide scope of resources that they can then take advantage of to help improve the quality of care and actually build their organizations up. From there, there can be trainings that we can offer to the whole staff. We can do, do the work to actually, you know, improve the templates within whichever medical record system you're using. Um, we can do the work to make sure that you're in compliance and you can kind of not be worried about an audit. You know, you're, you're the groups that do really well is, you know, if someone asks for an audit, they're responding within, you know, within four hours, they have everything pulled out from PDF and they're shipping it back to the payer. You know, if you're a group and you get asked for medical records and you're scrambling for two weeks and you're asking them to push back the due date, that's not a good sign, right? So, you know, the, the, the groups that I work with, you know, they are, they're in much better shape than that. And you know, we, we offer a whole scope of trainings and supports and consultation services. And I, it's been very rewarding to work with providers in that manner. And it's also given me the opportunity to work more uh, with you, Amanda, which has been really exciting. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me as well, you know, in the last couple of years, I've taken the opportunity to work for large organizations and to partner with uh, attorneys that we both know and respect in the field. And that gave me a wider access to just like you said, like it's people who are already seeking help or people who are in an audit. So I was seeing the worst of what was out there. Right. So, again, it's a little bit skewed in that perspective. But seeing that gave me the ability to see patterns. And as behavior analysts, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for data. We're looking for patterns. We're looking for the problems so we can solve them. And um, it's it's a joy to have an opportunity to collaborate with you and Sue on on how can we continue to to help organizations and and Jerome, where where do people learn about you? What, what's the name of the work you're doing? <laughs> sure, yeah. So I mean, technically, let's not forget uh, that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I, I am a, a management consultant, you know, but the difference between me and every other management consultant is I don't just have a, you know, a business degree and I'm making recommendations on how you alter things. I actually understand the clinical side. So if you want to work with someone to improve your organization, who understands the impact of doing things like potentially, you know, modifying the way in which you deliver trainings or CEUs to your team, and, you know, modifying how you communicate with the clinicians, the RPTs. Um, if you want to work with someone who understands that and can actually help direct you in a meaningful way, I mean, that's really the work I want to do to make sure you can provide better quality care to your patients and have a healthy organization. So um, my company is called RadBX. Um, and if you want to uh, learn more about our group, uh, our website is www.rad bx.com rad behavior i remember asking you jerome where did that come from because i just think of everything being rad uh, from the 80s it, you know I'm like that's so cool and your course you're like man let's bring it back to behavior analysis you know radical behavior taking that thoroughgoing approach 
being thoughtful, being a behavior analyst in everything we do, um, that really resonated with me. And I, I think it's cool that it has like sort of double meanings. I think the work that you're doing is very rad indeed, um, but it's also radical and thoroughgoing. So um, I appreciate that. And and, and um, you joining the show today to talk about the work that you and your team are doing and the fact that we're talking about, yes, there are things the industry needs, there's things the field needs, there's things that we need to have happen. Um, and it's exciting and energizing to know that there are people who are motivated, talented, and dedicated to achieving that. So, you know, I was surrounded by some of that same energy this past weekend at the Council of Autism Service Providers. And um, I am aligning myself with people who are really looking at moving the field forward because I believe in the power of the science and I know you do too. Absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on the head there. You know, uh, if, if you're looking to work with people who want to change the field and advance things, like that, that's where I want to be. That's in the space I want to be in. And if, you know, you as a provider feel like you're stuck or need, you know, to have those difficult conversations as to how to move things forward, that's a lot of the work I do. So I would, I would love to, you know, um, to have more of those conversations and, you know, our, our doors are open to help any provider who's really committed to improving the quality of care. Well, thank you, Jerome, and thank you for everything that you're doing for our field and for the time today. So again, it's www.radbx.com if you want to connect with Jerome and his team. And of course, if you want to snag information about applied behavior analysis, you can always do that by going to www.behaviorbay.com. 